Good morning, good morning to you, you. Good morning, good morning. Won't you share with a friend or two? Good morning, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning to Good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Black Table Talk, Dairy Dialogues Edition. I am your host, Shante Charles. I hope that you are having a great and wonderful day. Today is uh, Black Table Talk Tuesday. It's Teachable Tuesday. It's the day where we talk all things Black. Black people, Black power, Black life, Black joy black concerns we got quite a bit on the on the agenda today uh, we will be talking about black panther 2 um, but i'll be doing it tomorrow wednesday on my ig so you can follow me at daring dialogues ig and you can catch us there where we are going to be talking about some concepts and principles that went down in um, black panther 2 and you'll get an opportunity to um, give your thoughts, right, to chime in on that conversation. So I want to start with um, the conversation that began on yesterday. Um, I began it on TikTok also, at Daring Dialogues on TikTok, and uh, heard about the shooting that happened at the University of Virginia from my understanding, there was another shooting in Nebraska, possibly, but I'm not sure um, who the victims were. But I will say the UVA case concerned me, right, because there were uh, four African-American men whose lives, three of them, have been unalived by one. Good morning. And um, the thing that really troubled me Obviously, besides four black men whose lives are, three of them, like I said, are gone and one is gone and probably going to be gone for life at this point. Um, before the families could even really get the news that their children had been unalived, you had media outlets trying to break video footage of them being unalived. We say unalive because sometimes the other word will get you get your video reported. But I just thought that was just so uncouth <laughs> that these parents have not even had time to receive the news yet to even process the fact that their children have been unalived. And you have people rushing to put up video footage of it happening like the person was the young other young man was brought into custody 
So what was the point? What was the rush to want to put more of that out into the world? We have to be careful about the content that we are consuming. Because let me tell you something. This society takes pleasure in viewing our bodies in a desecrated state. And if you don't understand that, just look at the history of lynching in America. Okay? Picnics, popcorn, barbecue, little kids observing our unalived bodies. And that idea and that character of and way of doing things has bled over into present day. Same thing happened with uh, takeoff. I mean, come on. These sites literally posting the videos, posting the images. It's like this man is not even cold on the ground. But somebody has to just rush to put out the trauma and to put out the gruesome photos or the gruesome video and it's always about us. They don't do this to other people. At some point, we as a community have to say, stop this. This is not right. This is not appropriate. This is anti-black. <laughs> okay? So that's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, I don't have natural children. I have lots of beautiful God children. But I cannot imagine, and I pray I never have to imagine, you know, a parent that has gotten their kids, their children, excuse me, not kids, not baby goats. They've gotten their children through all kinds of dangers that young black males face. Gotten them to the point of high school graduation gotten them to the point of getting scholarships or whatever or their talent right has earned them a place to be at a fairly prestigious university uva only to get to that point and have them be unalived on a on a school bus coming back from a field trip i i, I can't i i, I can't I can't wrap my head around. You've gotten your child to this point. Hard as it is in America to get black males past the age of 18, they were all juniors. And another black male at college, not in the hood, at college, unalives them so that was very tragic now there is some backstory on the the gentleman who did the shooting it is being reported that there was some possible hazing going on that he had communicated with his father that he felt like he was being bullied and he was being harassed it doesn't really say what aid that the father offered him we also know that he had a history of anger and temper 
and had, you know, received some treatment in the past for those things. Those are things that we know. But he also had a gun that was brought on campus and that too is reported. And while he was going through apparently some kind of disciplinary um, review as to him having this gun on campus, he goes and unalives three black males. Now we don't know if he was being harassed by them, but their family is also reporting that they are in shock because the families are reporting and the people who knew those young men are reporting that they didn't see any of that kind of behavior coming out of them. They weren't known to be um, troublemakers or people who harassed other people. So I'm not gonna say much more about this because we don't have a full story yet. But what I will say is we got to make sure that black men get treatment, receive therapy, comprehensive therapy. We got to make sure that black men are being taught by black men about other ways to resolve their anger and their emotions besides picking up a weapon and unaliving other black men. Yes, we do. We have to, we have to talk about that. We have to make that a priority. Are there programs that are out there that are already doing it? Yes. Do we need more? Absolutely. We need more. Absolutely. The other statement that I saw today that disturbed me, and I'm talking about this because this is what we do over here. We talk about all things black and black concerns. This concerns me. So I went to a young gentleman's page that I am friends with and I actually am I actually will say I'm proud of the men that we are connected to that did not co-sign this message and did not sign off on it or say amen or whatever but he was definitely not alone in his thought I'll put it that way so I went over to his page this morning to wish him a happy birthday. I prayed for him instead. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. After I read what I read, I was like, I want to say happy birthday, but there's no space on your page to say happy birthday. But there was space to comment under this post. And I certainly was not going to comment under this post. However, I did pull the thought. So he shared a post that said this. And if you are of the Islamic faith, I want you to respond in the comment today. I want you to tell me where he is getting this from. And if there is something other than this, I want you to tell me where it's at. Because I, I have a Quran. Okay. I have a Quran. I have a Bible. I got a um, Tanakh. I got him. All right. This gentleman posted, this is another gentleman that clearly he's friends with, posted, and I quote, I'm looking at it right now. The Islamic faith teaches that there will be more women in hell than men. I believe it. I'm like, whoa, that's like a, 
that's like a really big blanket statement there, brother. Like, I'm going to need you to give me, I'm going to need you to give me book and verse. Chapter and verse for that. He said, the Islamic faith teaches that there will be more women in hell than men. I believe it. Now, my friend posted that statement and he wrote above it. This is what he wrote above it. That is problematic to me. He said, I fully believe this. Really? Then you and I are going to be part in friendship very soon. <laughs> he said, I fully believe this. The Democratic Party's pro-abortion and anti-family platform is demonic. Now, if you've read the Republican Party's platform, um, it's not anti-abortion, it's anti-women. So if you think that they are the opposing side, that's a lie. It's also not even pro-family as much as it is pro-control over women and children. Okay? Then he says, imagine a whole generation of women that fight for the right to murder children and gender changing. Are they fighting for the right to murder children? Or are they fighting for the right that if they have to choose between saving their life on the operating table and another life, they would probably choose their own because they could probably have more children. Are they fighting for the right to murder children or are they fighting for the right to say, I should have a choice in whether or not I want to bring a child into the world that was conceived through rape or incest? Because those things are being taken off the list of things. And by the way, the word abortion actually covers more than just people who willfully want to just do abortion on demand. So that whole statement there is an uneducated, uninformed statement about what abortion is. And I would recommend anybody making those kind of statements to actually go look at what abortion is, what is considered abortion in medical terms. Next paragraph, stuff that is literally against the Bible, I couldn't even imagine saying. Quote, this is what he thinks women are saying, okay? F God and what he wants, we're not going to be submissive. We're going to murder children. We support LGBTQ issues. That was a lot. That was like a, a nice little morality salad, okay? Good luck with that on Judgment Day. So my question is this. Since you feel this way, this is some very skewed reasoning, okay? You don't think men, if you think there's going to be more women in hell than men, you must not be counting the men that actually rape and molest children who will now, those children that are raped and molested in women, who will now have to carry children to term 
due to zero abortion policies, i.e. no abortion under any circumstance policy. You don't think that those men who rape and molest children outnumber all the women that you think you are including in this? Unless you don't think rape and molestation is a sin. Hmm? Are we not looking at the data and statistics on crime? Are we not looking at the gender of those who are committing the most crime? I.e. sin? Because women are not winning that race either. Are we not also understanding that abortions are utilized by both political parties? Especially in the name of covering up marital indiscretions? Or are we just saying that Democrats do that? So what I've concluded in this statement is, if you want to be in control of women, use less words. <laughs> yeah. And if you are of the Islamic faith or a Hebrew Israelite, because those are the two people that are talking in the statement that I just read. Neither of these statements is helpful to your faith community. And... <laughs> If you are joining a faith because you think it gives you power over women, if you are joining a faith because you think that that faith is going to help you put women in their place, if you are joining a faith because you think it punishes women more than it punishes men, then, sweetheart, you are not joining a faith. Your God is patriarchy and misogyny. And many times your God is patriarchy and misogynoir. That don't have nothing to do with your faith. That is you masking your toxic patriarchal ideals and misogyny and misogynoir with religion. So if you want to be in control of women, if you feel like your ego needs to be built, use less words. Just say what it is that you really believe and feel. Right? Do that. All right. Now that I'm done talking about those two things, <laughs> let's get into talking about Black women and black love. Now that we've discussed things that actually make it hard on black women and black love, let's continue to finish up our chapter on black love in captivity. Welfare's patriarchal logic in the age of mass incarceration, which is still a barrier to black marriage. And because of this logic, we have a whole bunch of men, unfortunately, that are now arising, blaming women for a system they did not create. So let's talk about it. Examples of how state-enforced patriarchy absolves the state of culpability for systemic poverty and other social constraints of oppressing Black people today 
can be found in the management of welfare programs across the nation. The welfare state tracks and holds poor black men accountable for the subsistence doled out to their wives or ex-wives and children even decades after issuing final payments. I personally know a black man in New York in his 60s whose social security check continues to be garnished to repay the government for the decades of subsidies his ex-wife and children received between the 1980s and 90s. Although he began receiving his social security benefits only a few years ago, the state has a long memory. Until his debt is paid in full, he will collect reduced monetary payments. It doesn't matter that this particular black man was not able to find steady employment while his children were growing up. It doesn't matter that when he tried to relocate to another state for greater opportunities, he was actually denied vehicle, uh, motor vehicle privileges, which quickly dashed his hopes of independence and gainful employment. Nor does it matter that his life was beset by one trauma after another. America, with its patriarchal heritage and conception of marriage, has no sympathy for the millions of black men it is actually excluded from these patriarchal privileges trapped in cycles of imprisonment, labor exploitation, or unemployment and poverty since the earliest days of debt slavery to the rise of the prison industrial complex. So if you are a black man aiming to be a white man, you too, sir, are trying to go into a burning house. These systems are oppressive. So the more that you try to lean into a masculinity that is built on white oppression, you are going to become an oppressor. Let me keep going. Although American presidents have given welfare new names across the decades, ADC, AFDC, TANF or Temporary Assistance for Needy Families is the same thing. Its patriarchal logic remains constant. Federal and state welfare policies typically require women seeking government aid for their children to sue absent fathers. Let me say that again. For those of you all who keep saying, Black women keep coming after me. Let me read it to you again, okay? Federal and state policies typically require women seeking government aid for their children to sue. They're required to sue you. Husbands, partners, boyfriends for child support that the government will subsequently collect to replenish its own coffers. So it's not like they can go and say, hey, I need support for my child. The father is unemployed, da, 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 and the government just hand it over. No, the government says you must first sue them in order for us to help you. Fathers earning less than 10000 per year were responsible for two-thirds of the nation's child support debt in 2006. Understand if they're earning less than $10,000 a year, they are below the poverty line. And these poor men easily could have seen the majority of their salaries garnished and their driver's licenses suspended or revoked. Please tell me what sense it makes to have a man's driver's license suspended or revoked 
when the majority of us in America need a driver's license to do just about anything. Paperwork needs driver's licenses. Jobs need driver's licenses. Cars to drive to jobs need driver's licenses. So the whole logic behind suspending the very thing that I need in order to have me driving legally on the road to get to the job that you want me to earn money from so that I can pay you back. Who is making these policies? Though these findings were published more than a decade ago, the policies remain in effect across many states, often sowing seeds of bitterness and distrust between young unmarried couples who might otherwise develop healthy and cooperative means of co-parenting. Well, of course it's supposed to foster bitterness and distrust and is doing a great job, obviously. Couples who might even preserve their romantic bonds and eventually seal them with marriage vows. When mothers are forced to name absent fathers and then sue them and sue them again and again, Poor fathers find themselves trapped in a closed system of utter privation. Because the fathers are often also poor, the vast amount of assigned child support goes unpaid and insurmountable arrearages quickly results. The fathers who try almost always fail as the automated enforcement mechanisms throttle endlessly. A trucker's license is suspended, for example. He cannot work. A laborer's wages are garnished at fifty-six fifty. No, whoa! A laborer's wages are garnished at sixty-five percent, so he cannot afford to even pay his own rent. A father obtains a new job and then loses it after being incarcerated for contempt because of his child support being in the arrears. And this cycle goes on and on and on and on. The child is harmed. The father is harmed. The mother is harmed. The communication between the father and mother is harmed. Welfare cost recovery often works against the stated goals of the TANF program, especially those of encouraging and sustaining two-parent families. None of this encourages and sustains two-parent families, whether the people that created the child are married or not. In 2017, 27 states were enforcing the harshest TANF policies. Although the federal government mandates recipients to, quote, assign their rights to child support payments to the states, it does allow states to determine if a portion of non-custodial parents' child support will be passed through to custodial parents of children receiving aid. States have the authority also to disregard child support payments when determining the applicant's eligibility. So some of this stuff <clears throat> can be dealt with on a state level, but some people just, cruelty is the point. Even when states do adhere to pass-through policies, the amounts are minimal, most ranging from a flat $50 to up to $200 for two or more children. My friend's 28-year-old son finds himself at war with the government and with his ex-girlfriend every month as he struggles to support their child and his own expenses. The source of contention. The state of New York garnishes his wages to replenish the TANF benefits his ex-girlfriend receives for their six-year-old son. 
Every, mo every month we go to battle about this, Teddy complains, because she tells me what the government gives her is not enough and she needs additional support from me. But my hands are tied. I'm working as much as I can, making $19 an hour and even doing overtime. I don't have any money stashed away that I can draw from and I have to be able to cover my rent and monthly expenses to even be in a position to remain in my son's life. Although Teddy's work history has been sketchy, he has held a few stable jobs over the past 10 years, including his current position in the construction business. Yet scholars have shown that child support enforcement disproportionately impacts young African-American men and has a contributing negative impact on their participation in the workforce. Similarly to Teddy Zion, a black male high school graduate in his early 30s with two children, has struggled to sustain himself and his children due to the wage reduction he faces every month. The state of New York garnishes his wages, collecting $800 per month to pay current um, and overdue child support. Zion has reached his limit when it comes to navigating the family court system, a place he says is not made to be there for the male. He respects his younger daughter's mother and calls her an excellent mom, but he feels tremendously burdened by a situation that traps him in a vicious cycle he is at pains to escape. I don't want to tarnish <clears throat> the mother of my child, he explains, because she's very respectable and works very hard to take care of my child. So I don't want to discredit her in any way. But because she was susceptible to getting on welfare when I had my daughter, she didn't want me to put my name on my daughter's birth certificate. She felt like if she ever did move to a place of needing assistance, she would have a better chance of receiving help from the government. I insisted though. I told her, no, I want my name on my daughter's birth certificate because my older daughter's mother did the same thing and my name was omitted from her birth certificate. I wasn't gonna go through that again. Once I put my name there though, when they're checking the record of the father, the name on the certificate, whosoever's name is there, they're going to pay. They're going to ask, is the father in your life and how much money does he provide? They want to know how much he provides so that they can cut you even shorter on the money that you're getting. That's why it feels like such a big scam because they want to know everything I'm doing to help out so that they can shorten how much they help out. Zion had always been an engaged father when it came to providing emotional and financial support for both of his daughters, so he actually experienced a rude awakening when he started getting letters in the mail. They were telling me my passport is not nothing. I can't get a passport, and my passport is not valid because I owe over a certain amount of money. So now you are even cutting short men's ability to leave the country and make more money in other places outside of the United States that might actually give black men a better chance. Now you're saying they can't go out of the country because you have invalidated their passport. If you owe over a certain amount of money, you can't drive. Your driver's license is suspended. If you get pulled over in your car on a suspended license and you have unpaid child support, you're going to the jail. This is absolutely demoralizing. You're a hardworking person. And so psychologically, what it does to you is it, make you feel, it makes you feel like you have to be more selfish so that you can have enough for yourself. The money is going and being spent everywhere. 
It's like, where's the money for yourself? And knowing all of this, I'm going to need everybody to think about where they are depositing their seed. Now let's continue. Talking to Zion left me with the impression that the welfare state functions like a temporary lender that will stop at nothing to recuperate from partners, husbands, and fathers as much of the money it dispenses to the mothers of their children as possible. I know somebody's on that supplemental income, and you know the state is taking back their money from that inadequate source of support. Whatever money you get, they will be right there to take their little cut. Another of Zion's acquaintances received a large settlement after being on welfare for several decades, and the state took like fifty to 60000 of it. It's definitely not free aid. Zion concludes, because they got the system down to a science and any reported income, any money coming into you, if you put it in your name, in your account, it raises flags and they will collect from you what they think you owe them. This is a lot of times why a lot of black men don't have things in their name, especially if they're dealing with child support issues. Today, TANF programs create for many young parents explosive entanglements of finances and the heart, cocktails of love, responsibility, ambition, desperation, and despair that lead them down paths of resentment and hostility. Zion confessed that sometimes it was to the point where I started to hate the mothers of my children. I'm not in that place anymore because I have to understand that money is not everything. Undoubtedly, money is not everything, but it is critical for personal and family stability. And Zion grapples daily with the instability in his life that the disparity between his aspirations and his inability to actualize them causes. The money the state wrests from him weekly, which he knows is not going directly or indirectly to his daughter or her mother, chips away at his sense of manhood. He describes how many men among his circle of friends and neighbors share his situation of struggling to work a steady job and provide for dependents. When you're striving to assert, assert yourself as a male in the world, Zion contends. Let's see what he contends and let's see how much it aligns with white patriarchal belief. You need to have certain things and you need to be saving money and you need to do certain things to be an assertive man. Males want to assert themselves. It's very hard when you can't save money, when you're only making something like, sometimes my checks be $330. And if I don't do overtime, my weekly salary drops from 700 and something all the way down to $330. Now I am forced to work extra, which forces me away from my children, sometimes on Saturdays when I could be spending time with my children instead of working. Holidays come up and I'm not paid for days off, so the money is extra short. If I do get to work on Saturday to replace the day off, I need to be in the overtime surplus category to really make money. And it's like the more I make, the more they'll take. So you don't really want to work. Some males, they don't work because they're just like, nah, they're not going to take all my money. And then to know that the mother is not getting all the money. That's another thing. A lot of people don't realize the mother is not getting all the money. I'm glad he admitted that. It's one thing if the mother is getting all the money, but it's another thing if this guy is doing everything and he's still dealing with this. 
So I spend money. My mother spends money. My aunt spends money. Everyone is spending money to support my daughters. And it's like I get hit twice and double, and it's not a good feeling at all. It feels emasculating. Because the women in his life are having to pick up the slack. And therefore, we get a whole bunch of commentary put into the social space about women or women being in charge or women controlling. No, women are so many times supporting and picking up the slack. In my case, because I grew up in a very similar situation, it was my uncles and my aunts. Who were picking up the slack. One last section here and we'll be done. 35 years ago, Johnny Tillman concluded that our nation's welfare programs needed a complete overhaul and an entirely new foundation. She observed then that over the decades of her activism, each American president devised and implemented supposedly new welfare programs promoting them as better than everyone else's. But from Tillman's purview, they were only advancing the same thing. In many respects, our current federal and state welfare policies continue to impact poor black aid recipients no differently than they did during the height of her welfare rights activism. Their power to divide black couples, to give financial support to the family unit with one hand while still taking away financial support with the other hand is eerily familiar. Tillman's insight and wisdom are needed now more than ever because an effective and supportive program demands loftier ideas, ethical commitments, and goals to address disparities and inequality that have been centuries in the making, especially when it comes to black men's alienation from stable employment opportunities. If the government genuinely wants to reduce the number of black children living in poverty, it will have to devise welfare training and employment programs that financially assist poor black men, acknowledging that most have been denied these opportunities to provide adequately for their families under the laws and customs of both old Jim Crow and the new Jim Crow. Given the poor employment outcomes for black men with criminal records, we can only imagine how TANF policies might be impacting their wallets and their already limited opportunities to secure a livable wage in today's society. A 2019 study now confirms that the decline in black men attending college over the past few decades is directly related to the passage of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986. Clinton-era criminal justice legislation designed to wage a war on drugs, also placed specific barriers between men incarcerated for drug offenses and a college degree, including laws that denied them access to the Pell Grant, and in some cases, even federal aid. The fact that more than half of the young black men in many large American cities are currently under the control of the criminal justice system is not, as many argue, just a symptom of poverty or poor choices, but rather evidence of a new racial caste system at work. No matter how much the government wants to pretend that poor black men are at liberty to assume 
responsibilities for their wives, partners, and children, the history of mass incarceration in America unveils the hypocrisy and the delusion behind this unwarranted posture. You cannot take on white male patriarchal structures, black men, when they have set it up for you to not do so. So what happens is your frustration of wanting to emulate these norms while living in the caste system that has designed for you is creating anger and frustration and you are blaming that on your female counterpart rather than putting the onus where it belongs on the policies and programs that white males have designed to keep you out of the structure that they keep demanding that you emulate. Lastly, predictions for black male mass incarceration in the 21st century are proving accurate. To make things worse, black women are being imprisoned at concerning rates, and their overrepresentation in women's prisons has extended roots reaching back to the 19th century. While still a drop in the bucket when compared to black men, black women are incarcerated at nearly twice the rate as white women. So black women being incarcerated is also on the rise. Many of the children that I taught within the last decade or so, both of their parents were incarcerated and they were being raised by the grandparents, many of them. So it is on the rise. Today, the United States criminal justice system houses 2.3 million persons, adults and juveniles behind bars, and close to 1 million of them are black. Out of 2.3 million, almost 1 million of them are black. Despite their racial minority status in this country, Americans of African descent make up 40% of the nation's incarcerated population. They also make up 30% of the additional 840,000 persons who are on parole and the 3.6 million on probation. The untenable numbers of black men under correctional control are neither an accident nor an indication of any natural propensity for criminal behavior on the part of black men. Rather, they reveal something more sinister about America's ever evolving, evolving institutional determinants of black life and yes, black love. America's ongoing project of forbidden black love has finally found its most hospitable home in the prison industrial complex. In the institutions of racial enslavement, lynching, racial massacres and welfare each prove painfully effective at discouraging and even disrupting black love, the prison industrial complex has succeeded in this on another level altogether. The prison reform advocacy organization Worth Rises phases it best with its summation that America has quote, built an industry and economy dependent on human caging and control that capitalizes on crime and prevents justice. Capitalizes on crime and prevents justice. Stemmied by its 35 year legacy of unprecedented human caging and the gross violations associated with mass incarceration, the nation now finds itself at a crossroads. 
in a political moment fueled by heated debates about the values of black lives and increasingly visible activism on the part of those aiming to dismantle this complex and eliminate its effect on poor and vulnerable communities, politicians of all stripes at the state and federal levels are taking notice and responding. However, it is not easy to determine whether the darkest days are actually behind us. Prison reform activists are making strides in convincing legislators of the dangers of this complex and the mass incarceration it orchestrates. Even many Republicans are supporting suggested reforms meant to overturn counterproductive laws so as to terminate some of these policies and practices that are encouraging a return to the prison. Yet America has always preferred punishing black men for their antisocial responses to being structurally victimized. As a result, we have reached a point where progressive policies at this late hour may not matter in the end. Mass incarceration has already done its job so perfectly that the black community, black love and black marriage may not recover from its effects before the end of the 21st century. In this age of mass incarceration, forbidden black love and its historical antecedents in America, we have been left with millions of heterosexual black women wandering through unstable landscapes of lovelessness, unsatisfying marriages, divorce, and most prevalently, singlehood. But there are models of resilience that black women can champion for inspiration and support. In spite of America's racist and sexist heritage, there are nevertheless black couples who share love in successful marriages, provide hope to black women who are still in search. Their examples reveal the quality of love that black women can and do experience in the lifelong commitment with black men. I am thankful to say I am one of them. Together, their stories make an, an incontrovertible case for why our democratic nation should care about black women and black love. We have finished chapter four. We will be going into chapter five next week. And the title of that chapter is, Will Black Women Ever Have It All? Will Black Women Ever Have It All? This is going to prove to be an interesting read. All right, we've got about 15 minutes. I know I read a lot. We discussed the uh, UVA players being killed, that interracial violence, that proximity crime, as they say. And then we've discussed black men using their faith or thinking their faith is supposed to be the grounds by which women will be punished. And then we topped it off with the legacy of welfare policies that damage black men, black women, and black children. If you would like to join me today and you would like to respond to any of the topics, please feel free to click on the camera and let me know you want to come in to talk. It was a lot. Oh my gosh, it was a lot.
Uh oh, it's saying you are unable to join because of technical difficulties. Let me try to go this way. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, we absolutely have to talk. <laughs> hmm. Um, Pastor Ben, see if you can go out and then come back in. Let's see if we can get it to work. So pop out of the broadcast and then pop back in. And let me see if I can pull you in that way. If you are listening by Anchor, I want to thank you for your time and attention. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness. So continue to go out and be light. Take care.